It is very late at night on June 27th. I guess it's very, really very early in the morning, the morning of June 27th. And in any case, what that means is that this is lottery day. That is the day in Shirley Jackson's immortal short story on which the lottery takes place. More importantly, this is my birthday and uh, I'm extremely fucking tired, but I figured I would give you a little birthday present. So I hope you're taking notes. Um, here's, here's the present. Uh, poetry is very hard. Uh, it takes long study and practice and uh, luck. And, you know, even, even with all of those things, in the end, nobody can really account for, you know, why, why one poem survives and another doesn't. But what I can tell you is that while you can't control who you are, you can't control who you know, especially, you can't control what's the, you know, what the fashion of the time. But you can control this neat little trick that, that I'm going to give you. Uh, and with any luck, if you want to write poems that people will publish, if you want to write poems that people will uh, give prizes to, that people will retweet, that people will, when you read them in a bookstore at a reading, uh, people will respond to with uh, by making the sound hmm. If you want to write poems like that, then um, this trick will get you a lot of the way there. I can't say, I can't guarantee anything, but this trick will get you a long part of the distance there. The trick, which I did not invent, uh, is um, one that I call the inspirational non sequitur volta. Um, and I, you know, I think the master of this is James Wright. Now, I, I don't think he invented it either. I just think he sort of, he brought it to perfection. Um, and uh, for, um, you know, to clarify, I think the, the formula of this trick, if you want to apply it, is really just sort of a three-part formula. Uh, it goes like this. Jibber-jabber, jibber-jabber, line break, revelation. It's three parts. Jibber-jabber, jibber-jabber, line break, revelation. Now, if you can do those three things with a straight face, then you will have produced a much of, I'll say much of, the magic that goes into a poem that people will respond to right away. This is a poem, let me put it this way. You may not like this poem. This poem may drive you crazy. It may irritate the shit out of you that people like this poem. But this is a poem that will be email forwarded to you by your coworker, your ex-girlfriend, and your mom. So if you want to be able to write poems, that have that kind of appeal, what you need to do is jibber-jabber, jibber-jabber, line break, revelation. Now, just to demonstrate what I'm talking about here, here are the ends. I'm just going to read the ends of three of James Wright's most celebrated poems. I'm just going to read the ends of them for you real quick. Here's the end of Northern Pike. We prayed for the game warden's blindness. We prayed for the road home. We ate the fish. There must be something very beautiful in my body. I am so happy. Here's the end of the blessing. The light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realized that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. And here's the end of lying in a hammock at William Duffy's farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. I have wasted my life. Now, I, I can already anticipate your objection, which is, 
Well, Matthew, that's all well and good for James Wright, but I'm a poet living now. I have, you know, I, this is this is a different time. Uh, the style has changed, appetites have changed, audiences have changed. The same formula is not going to work today. So, I'm now going to read you the endings of uh, six poems, all of which went viral in the last uh, year or two. Some of them were not written in the last year or two, but they all went viral in the last year or two. All right, so um, here is the end of uh, the first lines of emails I've received while quarantining by Jessica Salfia. And by the way, I, I am absolutely not making fun of these poets. I am celebrating them because they have pulled something off. Um, and also to clarify, when I say jibber jabber, I don't mean that what that, that these lines don't make sense. I just mean that they are sort of placebo lines, that they might make sense, but they don't have to make sense, that their real role is to sort of, is to be placeholders, um, to prepare one or, or to pointedly not prepare one for the inspirational non sequitur Volta that is about to arrive. All right, so here's the very end of the first lines of emails I've received while quarantining. Now keep in mind, James Wright, Suddenly I realize, jibber, jabber, jibber, jabber, line break revelation. Here's the end. Now shipping face masks as recommended by the CDC. As you know, many people are struggling. This is not normal. Here's the end of the end of poetry by uh, Ada Limon. Enough of the animal saving me, enough of the high water, enough sorrow, enough of the air and its ease. I am asking you to touch me. Here is the end of Sorrow Is Not My Name by Ross Gay. My neighbor sings like an angel at the end of, and at the end of my block is a basketball court. I remember, my color's green, I'm spring. Here's the end of In the Time of Pandemic by uh, Kitty O'Meara. And when the danger passed and the people joined together again, they grieved their losses and made new choices and dreamed new images and created new ways to live and heal the earth fully as they had been healed. That one, I'll tell you, that one was not, uh, that, one's not that one was not a non sequitur. So, all right, fair enough. That was not, a, it had some of the formula, but that was not a true non sequitur. So let's, um, uh, here we go. And here is the end of Everything is Going to Be All Right by Derek Mahon. This one is, boy, this one I think really hits the James Wright sweet spot. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the daybreak and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Uh, so this episode is not what I was planning exactly. For, first of all, uh, welcome to the show. I, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to move up to the front of the show. I think my little uh, uh, cup rattling uh, plea for ratings and reviews and whatnot. Uh, I yeah, I think that's probably good for now. Go to the do the thing that you know helps the podcast. Go to Apple Podcasts and give it five stars. You know, I will say I uh, the rating has been annoyingly stuck right at 5.0 stars and I would love to shake it up a little bit so you know surprise me throw something strange in there also if you I've heard from a, a few people recently about the different kinds of episodes I've been doing uh, and nobody seems quite to agree so if you have a strong opinion about uh, you know w whether there's one or another type of episode that you prefer let me know 
I will probably just keep doing the same kind of thing I feel like doing, which I'm still figuring out as I go along. But uh, you know, it won't hurt to know a little more about uh, what people actually enjoy. So there's that. Uh, rate the show, review the show, and let me know what you think about what the fuck is going on with it. Um, I'm still figuring it out. I don't know yet what the final answer is going to be. So just write me at sleevericketts at gmail.com. I am, I apologetically, there is a sleevericketts account on Twitter. Don't bother with it. (laughs) I, 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 I bookmarked that uh, that uh, handle at Slee Ricketts just because I figured when I first was starting the show, I figured, ah, you know, might as well, you know, keep it there so it doesn't disappear because, you know, it was a real hot ticket. Lots of other people were vying for, as you can imagine. Um, but then once I'd sort of <laughs> registered this inert account that had never tweeted or posted or done anything, then of course, um, one of you, um, delightful people found it and tagged it. <laughs> so suddenly it, uh, it, it began to exist. So literally all I do on there is post links to, uh, episodes. So if you need yet another way to find links to episodes, then they will be on Twitter, but that's all. I appreciate any, if you want to retweet or pass it along or like it or share it, Great. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm not going to do any interaction on there because I just don't want to get drawn into the whole fucking Twitter mess. Though all of you brave people who are on Twitter, thank you for your service. Um, As I said, this episode is not exactly what I was planning. I'm in the middle of recording a very dignified, extremely high-minded episode all about Freud and Kant, and cosmopolitan Brooklyn sex novelist Brian Platzer. Uh, and I was you know, all set to get that in the can for you this week when I read this fucking article. <laughs> and it completely derailed me. So uh, last week, I did a, an interview with Austin Allen uh, poet, critic, and stand-up guy. Um, go listen to it if you haven't already. Uh, it's episode ten, uh, 10. I think it's a numbered episode 10. There was a little bonus thrown in there uh, before then. But um, it's a conversation with Austin Allen. It's a great conversation. It's all about science and uh, the humanities, or science and literature, really. And you know, we talk a good deal about science poems in particular. We even get into a couple of dumb Twitter beefs or, or you know, uh, disgraceful Twitter behavior by scientists and poets alike. So um, I was really irritated when I found that published uh, just a week ago um, and just in time for me not to quite be able to uh, incorporate it into last week's episode, I found this article in Electric Lit on June 22nd, 2021 by Alex Manley. Twitter doesn't want to let the poets find out about science. I, that's the title. Twitter doesn't want to let the poets find out about science. The, the little one-liner under the title is, there's a new social media refrain anytime there's a discovery about the moon or trees or a strange animal. Quotation marks. Don't tell the poets. God damn it. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning. I'm going to read a, you know, uh, some selections of this um, article. It's... Um, it was news to me. Uh, the trend is very irritating, as is the article itself. Um, though it's, you know, it's it does a fairly thorough job of reporting on its topic. Uh, Alex Manley, the author, uses the the pronoun they, and I intend to use that pronoun and will will do my very best to to use that consistently 
if, if I happen to use a different pronoun, it is by mistake, and, and I apologize in advance. But I, am, uh, I intend to do nothing but, but use the um, Manley's preferred pronoun. Just as a note, um, so he, here's the, here's the beginning of the of the, the article. Ask a group of poets what their least favorite subjects in school were, and it won't be long before they start listing scientific disciplines. Whether it's math, physics, is math a scientific discipline? I, I thought it was really a different category. I mean, I thought it was like properly a different category. All right. At any rate, whether it's math, physics, chemistry, or biology. Historically, the perception, both within and without literary culture, has been that the artsy-fartsy minds of creative writing types just can't hack the left-brain fields. <sighs> All right, okay. Um, I, I'm just just to um, just to dog ear that paragraph. Uh, the um, the perception has been. That, that's, that, I think, is going to turn out to be really sort of the operative uh, turn in this entire article. But let's continue. And while it's neither universally true nor especially useful, it persists as a perception. So it's interesting to note that in the space between poetry and pop science, a new joke has emerged. Now the gag is that poets cannot be stopped from converting scientific facts into verse. They can only be contained. Lately on social media, it seems like every time there's a discovery about the moon or trees or a particularly strange kind of animal, someone says, don't tell the poets. And in the article, I'll, I'll include a link, of course, um, but there, there are a number of tweets that the, um, the author includes of... Um, uh, the, the number of tweets that, that use this line, don't tell the poets, or some variation uh, on it. Um, here, on Twitter, for instance, you'll find variations of that phrase used in tweets about a newly discovered species of fish, a picture of a book whose pages have all crystallized, a fire raging inside a tree that had been struck by lightning, a Wikipedia page saying that elephants have been observed engaging in moon worship, an article with the headline, Your Brain and the Universe Are More Similar Than Previously Thought, and a video of a chunk of forest moving back and forth as though the ground beneath it were breathing in and out. That's, oh boy, that's a juicy list. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to that, but all right. I just, I just wanna get to, um, all right, all right, here, here, okay. One more little, little bit. It's unclear to what degree any of the above discoveries has led to actual poetry. But clearly, science is a common enough source of inspiration that everyone's worried they might. So um, Manley goes on to, to, to Manley is uh, uh, a poet, talks about their own poet, you know, experience composing poems, writing poems about science, talks to a number of other poem, you know, poets, um, many of whom seem to be their friends, but, you know, about how, you know, poets love to draw from any given... Uh, you know, subject for poetry, for poetry fodder. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm reminded of the line, I think I quoted in a review about Natasha Trethewey, that um, uh, Donald Hall says that, you know, one should not go through life as if uh, life were a fishing expedition and poems were the fish. These, the poets interviewed in this <laughs> article seem certainly to do exactly that. Uh, I thought of Paul Guest, Matthew Oldsman, Albert Goldbarth. I mean, Albert Goldbarth is relentless about it. Tracy K. Smith has a whole book uh, about sort of the, the, the science and science fiction theme that uh, I think that was the one that won the Pulitzer. Life on Mars, I think I think that's right. Uh, so, the, you know, there, 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 there are a, a fair number of um, poets. And I should say all of these are poets who write poems I like. And write poems about science that I like, uh, but you know there is a um, there is a kind of a a neat facts uh, trend or micro trend in poetry. It often is not really. It's I, I will say it's not always a science fact, but there there is a um, uh, Claudia Emerson and Natasha Trethewey, as I you know as I mentioned in the review, both sort of liked to pluck little 
um, gems from history in particular to to make use of in their poems. So you know, neat fact trawling and particularly science fact trawling is something that happens in poetry. Uh, Manly talks a, a, a lot about all of the poets who like doing this and and their own experience, you know, enjoying doing this or feeling drawn to, feeling tempted by uh, the science, scientific facts. Um, and then worries at great length about whether this is good for poet, whether this is good for science, <laughs> whether or not this is good for science. Very little concern about whether it's good for poetry, but that's not, uh, as I'll get to, I think, a coincidence here. And there's a, you know, we get into politics a little bit later on in the article. A host of overly online writers will pop up, each of them eager to use the detail, you know, detail from some, some newly discovered science fact, to help the writing pop a little bit more, lending a veneer of the natural to their poems about their feelings, a sort of literary greenwashing. So the, uh, I think that's three different things happening there. And the, you know, the one thing science is a, is a, you know, has a little extra spice, a little flavor, a little something new. Um, and then, and then on the other hand, it, it lends a veneer of the natural, which is if that was a deliberate choice, it was a pretty brilliant one, a veneer of the natural, man, that's, that's some, that's some artificial wood sighting prose right there. So either it, it makes the writing pop or it, it makes the writing seem authentic, sort of, or natural, um, or it's a sort of literary greenwashing, greenwashing being, um, if I understand correctly, uh, sort of a political practice whereby a, an otherwise uh, questionable or objectionable entity is given, is made to, is made to seem more acceptable by virtue of some sort of environmentalism, some sort of participation in or cooperation in or support of environmentalist enterprises or undertakings. So there are three, three different reasons that, that Manley offers there that a poet might steal from science. And then uh, they give their own um, personal experience here. I'd recently come across the term rain shadow, the term for a region that receives little precipitation by virtue of being just on the other side of a mountain range and had vowed to work it into a poem. I wasn't sure how or where or even why really, but I knew that the name itself felt like it held a kind of poetic energy. So uh, Manly ultimately comes down on the side of, you know, uh, this being basically good. It's basically good that poets are so into science and poets are stealing so much from science and, and uh, you know, re rehearsing science in the you know the mainstream popular conversation um, because it's good for science it's good to you know educate people to bring science to you know to people's attention more and more why manly thinks that people are more likely to, to encounter a scientific fact if it is published in a poem than in a scientific journal i'm not sure um, but, uh, but that's the conclusion that Manley comes to. It's, it's, it's ultimately, it's to the good, uh, science is a good cause and therefore why not cram a little bit of it into your poems besides it's, uh, it's sort of fashionable and it gives them a little, a little extra, um, zhuzh. So th that, that's, that's where Manley seems to come down. But, um, as I said, they don't really anywhere address whether this whole trend is good for poetry and they also aside from acknowledging that there does seem to be a pull um, that they have experienced and that others seem to have experienced and that everybody on twitter apparently um uh, assumes or gleans or infers would be present everybody seems to know intuitively that this is the kind of thing a poet would like. Um, aside from acknowledging that, uh, they don't really address, well, so why exactly? <laughs> and uh, I was put in mind by, you know, particular 
phrase in this or a particular line in this in this article it says this is from uh, earlier on um, yeah so um, early on uh, Manly cites an article with the headline your brain and the universe are more similar than previously thought um, they also cite <laughs> an article tweeted this is a tweet by weird animals at weird animals or weird underscore animals butterflies drink turtle tears which provides them with a with salt a behavior known as lacrophagy which is a pretty good word um, and there is a sort of heartbreaking photograph of uh, beautiful little orange and yellow butterflies landing on the face and drinking the tears of what looks to be a painted box turtle um, it's pretty fucking cute. Um, so tear drinking and your brain being similar to the universe and elephants worshiping the moon and rain shadows, uh, you know, metaphors contained within the, the, the fabric of nature itself. Um, uh, the pic a picture of a book whose pages have all crystallized, a newly discovered species of fish. In this um, here, in one of the tweets, this is by at Chester, spelled absurdly. The tweet, though, is it's a it's got photos of a, a dazzling sort of looks like underwater phosphorescent fish with a lot of strange tails spinning off of it. But the um, the tweet itself is new fish dropped. Don't tell the poets. So dropped there is a is a little bit of a cheeky um, reference to. Uh, songs or, or content, you know, creative content dropping. It says, you know, a new album dropped, um, a new episode dropped. Uh, so this is a new fish dropped. Don't tell the poets. So what all of these sort of got me thinking about and what, uh, and, and in particular, your brain and the universe are more similar than previously thought, was this uh, this this particular style of thinking, this style of thinking, whereby one's own thoughts, you know, one's associations, which is really sort of what what, what metaphors are, one's associations are not limited to, you know, the boundary of your skull, but they extend in implication and even in effect out into the tangible world. Uh, this is a, a world in which, in fact, the, the structure of your mind is um, inextricable from the structure of the universe, in which um, things themselves carry their own metaphors. Uh, this is a world in which um, you know, magical thinking, we call magical thinking magical thinking, because it presumes that there is a direct connection between thought and reality. That is, you know, it's magical thinking to say that uh, if you, you know, it, that if you don't worry about something, <laughs> it will come true, right? There's a, there's a belief there that there's a direct connection between your thought and uh, the, the external reality. Um, and there does seem to be something in these little science nuggets that echoes that. I mean, especially that line about your brain being more similar to the universe. So, so I think all of these, again, it, these aren't just any science facts. And I'll come back to that. But these are, these are a particular kind of science fact. These are science facts that have something of uh, what I think of as the romantic impulse to them. I, um, I love folk etymology, so when I think about the romantic impulse, I take it from the old French word roman, which of course means novel. Uh, and you know the, the, uh, the early um, knights and um, you know the chivalric code, this is this is part of the very early romantic tradition, and I associate, that with uh, stories so that the romantic impulse says you know whereas the classical 
vision of the world is, well, what's good is what's good for me. The romantic impulse says what's good is what's good for the story. The classical poet says, I'm sad because it's raining. The romantic poet says it's raining because I'm sad. So that romantic impulse, I think, is really present in all of these tweets. If there were a really, uh, um, let's, let's take a moment. Like this is a, this is an article that came out a week ago. A week ago, it's not as if there's been some dearth of science facts that have been just bleak and brutally depressing and bereft of any flicker of magic, right? We've been drowning in science facts of that kind. Science facts like X vaccine, only Y percent effective, Q variation, Z percent more deadly. Though nobody's, nobody's tagging tweets that list those facts with, don't tell the poets, new Delta variation more likely to kill children. Right? That's not popping up in Alex Manley's piece, because really this is a piece about a particular kind of science fact. And th you know, there's another word for this way of thinking, this romantic impulse. Um, if you don't like my phony etymology for romantic, which I'm sure any of you who are actual literary scholars won't, but uh, there is another word for it. And it's a word that, you know, so as I said, the other episode I'm recording right now uh, is deals in some depth with Freud, um, in particular with Freud's book, uh, Totem and Taboo, um, which was published in 19... 13. Um, so in that book, and then again, in, in, a, in a kind of a long article or short book, depending on how it's published, that he um, put out uh, in 1919, just a few years later, called The Uncanny, he talks about this idea again. And this idea is what he calls the animistic worldview. So um, he makes some claims about the worldview that that you know human beings had at earlier stages in our technological development you know there are plenty of methodological sociological and ethical problems with freud's writing i'm not going to get into right now i do mention them a little more in the other episode but um in the uncanny he, he doesn't deal as much with sort of phony anthropology. He deals more with, uh, you know, his real, his real sweet spot, which is uh, <laughs> weird child sex stuff. Um, so in The Uncanny, he talks about this particular feeling. This feeling of The Uncanny, which in German is um, unheimlich, uh, meaning unhomelike. The uncanny is the unhomelike in German, and um, and he he actually identifies it with a a sensation that the uncanny is is you know when we we see a doll and for a moment we're not sure if it's alive or not. When we encounter a number that appears again and again and again in a way that begins to seem deliberate, when there's a repetition, a déjà vu. Uh, when when there is some eerie suggestion of a conscious mind ordering elements of the world around us that should not be ordered by a conscious mind. What he says is that this kind of creeping feeling we get, by the way, that that the um the phrase uncanny valley, which I think was popularized, um, some years ago by, it was a, it existed before, the, uh, before this, but I think it was popularized by 30 Rock as a, as this funny little zone between the you know, sort of very doll-like, very sort of safely not lifelike pictures and models and, uh, animations of, you know, human-ish figures. And then, and then like extremely lifelike human figures. There's a little zone in between where something is 
pretty damn lifelike, but not quite lifelike enough. And instead of being delighted or uh, awed, we just all get creeped out by it. And this is known as the uncanny valley. Um, so it's uncanny. Uh, and this is, you know, this is the same sensation that, that Freud's talking about. This uncanniness, he would say, is the recurrence. It's the, it's the reemergence of an earlier childhood stage of development. In a way, it's a suspicion that maybe that childlike vision of things, maybe that was right all along. That is, maybe the universe is magical. Maybe it is animistic. Maybe it is filled with spirits and spirits that are like human beings. Here, I'll just read. This is Freud from The Uncanny. I can't find who translated this. A lot of the translations I've, I, I deal with are A.A. Brills, but I'm not sure about this one. At any rate, um, here's, here's Freud from The Uncanny, uh, published in 1919. Our analysis of instances of the uncanny has led back to the old animistic conception of the universe, which was characterized by the idea that the world was peopled with the spirits of human beings and by the narcissistic overestimation of subjective mental processes, such as the belief in the omnipotence of thoughts, the magical practices based upon this belief, the carefully proportioned distribution of magical powers or mana among various outside persons and things, for all of you uh, Magic the Gathering players out there, as well as by all those other figments of the imagination with which man in the unrestricted narcissism of that stage of development, strove to withstand the inexorable laws of reality. This is the same general idea of the kid who has not yet achieved object permanence. The kid who thinks that, you know, when he hides his eyes, you can't see him. You know, this is children who don't fundamentally understand that we are not all you know, part of their own mind, right? And if you as a little kid are so geocentric in your vision of things, if you are so caught up in this self-centered understanding whereby your own whims and, and tragedies and losses and, you know, pleasures are, are the, the driving forces in the universe, then you live in a magical universe. You live in a universe in which, you know, the laws of nature are the laws of your thoughts. And an association, a metaphorical likeness between things is, is a real connection, a tangible connection between them. Um, an animistic world is a world in which all of these juicy scientific tidbits that poets supposedly find so irresistible, an animistic, childlike universe is one in which all of these things go without saying. Because of course butterflies drink the tears of turtles, and of course the pages of a book are crystallized, and of course your brain and the universe have a lot more in common than you might think. And of course elephants worship the moon, because all of that is consistent with a universe governed by thought, by whim and association, by the picturesque, by the romantic. So, that so many of these science facts appeal immediately to poets, or simply that they come across to everybody else on Twitter as something that would appeal to poets ought to tell us at least as much about the kind of science fact that gets published and promoted and circulated today as it does about why poets are so fond of science facts. I think that this article as a whole has as much to do with what people think of poets 
as it has to do with what poets think of science. And I think it actually has even more to do with what people think of science. So just a brief and petty note, because the, as I said, you know, I clearly, I, I owe a debt to Alex Manley for providing me with this juicy, infuriating information and for doing the work of reporting out the story. Um, it is though, it's just written in, in uh, an intolerably smug tone. Um, and it, it ends with unbelievably, just breathtakingly, just in perfect Twitter poet fashion, um, Manly ends it with a story of their own experience writing a poem uh, uh, based on science facts that in, uh, how, how could I have imagined in the midst of writing this article, it turned out a, a poem of mine was a finalist for uh, a, a very significant uh, Canadian poetry prize. Who knew? Um, and, uh, and, and they write of this poem. I was conscious, writing it, I was conscious that it felt like a prize poem in some sense, though I had no aspirations or expectations that it would be a finalist for anything at the time. But the, but the sexy thruple of the highly personal, the historically curious, and the obscurely scientific seemed to evoke some platonic ideal of somber and meaningful poetry. In a sense, after I got over the initial shock of seeing my name on the finalists list, it sort of made sense. Science poems were all the rage these days, after all. So out of sheer spite, I went ahead and looked up this poem because they do give the title of the poem. Uh, and I'll provide a link so you can judge for yourself. I just read it through once and I'll, you know, while I can't say that it's beautiful or um, moving or witty or evocative or informative or especially knowledgeable about science, it is exceedingly knowing. It, it oozes knowingness from every line. It is perhaps the knowingest poem I've ever read. And it does use science, or at least the it name checks science, um, in a very deliberate way. And that you know, Manley cites the, the sexy thruple of the highly personal, the historically curious, and the obscurely scientific, is, um, does not seem at all accidental. Uh, it is a, I, you know, while I can't um, assess Manley's intentions, I will say that it reads as very calculated to play upon uh, a, a popular desire to read, to read about poems, to read poems, and to read about science in a particular way. So in, in, in some sense, you know, I read it less as a poem about a poet who found science irresistible than a poem about a, a very um, skilled, a very skilled marketer who identified in readers of poetry and in uh, you know, uh, casual browsers of science headlines, a desire for a certain kind of harmony. That's how I read it. And you know, evidently, uh, you know, it was a pretty successful execution of that, um, of that knowing Ness. Uh, so I don't know if they've announced the prize, but uh, if 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 not, then I, I you know best of luck to Manly. In the end, looking at all these tweets about fish and turtle tears and elephants and books and brain structure, looking at all these tweets about magical, delicious, romantic pathetic fallacy-mongering science facts, again, all of a certain kind, 
all of these tweets tagged with don't tell the poets. I really conclude that this trend has little or nothing to do with poets. Sure, there, there are poets, you know, as he says, are magpies. They will use anything, and they certainly do use science. They will use whatever is on hand to make shiny, pretty nests. Um, but again, they use plenty of other disciplines apart from science. Um, so really, what I think this trend is about is, as I said, it's not about how poets think. It's not about how people think about poets. It's really about how people think about science. And I would say that don't tell the poets is no homo for magical thinkers about science, for people who want to read science with an eye to a sort of a comforting childlike vision of the universe as fundamentally ordered, orderly, uh, harmonious, metaphorically sound, uh, and ultimately, you know, on some kind of track or program or path to some kind of meaning. When I say no homo, that's a that's a. Um, uh, really unfortunate um, convention for a while among a certain set of uh, mostly young men who would follow up in casual conversation any sort of complimentary speech about another man with the disclaimer, no homo, which I, I've always, I just always found to be like syntactically really uh, abrupt and clumsy, um, but n what no homo meant, hey, that's a that's a really uh, beautiful jacket you're wearing, buddy, no homo. What that meant was, despite my having said a nice thing to you, fellow male, I, unlike homosexuals, do not wish to sleep with you. That That's what no homo meant. It is obviously a stupid fucking thing to say. And I think it's mostly gone out of fashion. <laughs> but I think don't tell the poets is no homo. But instead of disclaiming homosexuality, it's disclaiming magical thinking. It's saying, look at this delicious, delightful, and deeply comforting science fact, because it's science. It's reliable, it's empirical, it's grounded in evidence. And so if science says that butterflies drink turtle tears and elephants worship the moon, and there's really not that big a difference between our brain and the universe, if science says that, then maybe it's okay for me to feel like everything's gonna work out. Now, I think our intellectual culture is in a state of deep despair and so just as one might temper, say, a public boast with a little bit of self-deprecation, I think these little science tweets are ways to revel for a moment in orderliness, in meaning, in kind of a metaphorical symmetry in the universe. And then at the same time, you know, to, to drop your voice and, and uh, disclaim it. Hey, unlike those poets, I, I don't, you know, I don't read too much into this. I don't really have an animistic vision of the world. I'm just saying, hey, it's science, but don't tell the poets. There's been a kind of serendipity to this whole episode. Uh, so I guess it is fitting that uh, I, I'm going to read a poem I just found today. Um, not, thankfully, on Twitter, but in a real live uh, hard copy 
magazine. Uh, this is a poem I found in the newest issue of 32 Poems, Spring-Summer 2021 issue. Um, it is, uh, it's called OK Is by Anne-Marie Thompson. And I actually know Anne-Marie, so it's uh, especially irritating that 32 Poems got this poem and I didn't manage to snag it for the magazine that I have yet to be officially disavowed by. Um, God damn it, Anne-Marie. Don't send this stuff to me. Forget David Clark. So, despite my resentment, I'm going to read this poem, which is a, um, it, it's almost a, well, I'll, I'll talk a little more about it, but I think it, it I read it as sort of a, an inside out version of one of the poems I started this episode with. It is the inverse of an inspirational non sequitur volta. Uh, though it it is in some ways it's in though in, in in some ways it resembles one, but I think it does something quite different. So this is okay is by Anne Marie Thompson, and the title does um, uh, continue in the first line. So I'll read the title with it. Okay is the new good, which contains multitudes. Finishing half the dishes, the homework. Work, work, not crying, or not crying much, not dying. Adaptability has less to do with biology and more to do with getting okay with okay. To live in Manhattan, one gets okay with an underwhelming kitchen. To teach middle school orchestra, one gets okay with multiple tonalities. To stay with a person one shouldn't, one gets okay with ignoring friends. This is the easy part, reaching a new equilibrium. The difficulty lies in knowing when simply surviving is not okay. All rules of thumb are currently inapplicable. And yet here I am, teaching you thumbs up. Here's my hand, touching your little fingers. Here's the curve. Here's the sign. We are okay. So this, as I said, this poem is, you know, I think if you were driving past this poem fast enough, it would be easily mistakable for a, a poem of platitudinous all-purpose comfort. Uh, but I think it, it actually um, takes that kind of poem uh, and, and dissolves it bit by bit. <laughs> You know, it the opening offer of the poem, <laughs> okay, is the new good. That could easily be a, a line from from any one of these uh, these um, feel good viral pandemic poems, uh, which contains multitudes, um, obviously echoing leaves of grass, and you know, suggesting uh, some well worn material that we are uh, we are going to hear a litany, but also maybe we're we're not really going to hear anything new. Uh, this is a recycled. Um, line and a very commonly, you know, recycled line. <laughs> Finishing half the dishes, which is, you know, the smallest kind of compromise. The homework, the work, work, slightly a bigger deal when <laughs> you only finish uh, half of your work. Not crying or not crying much, not dying. So, you know, the, the stakes increase uh, over time. Uh, adaptability has less to do with biology and more to do with getting okay with okay. And that, I think, is the first suggestion that this may be a very different kind of poem. Because if the adaptability we're talking about is not, um, is not something determined by biology, I mean, we, we may be dealing with a definition of okay that is not... Um, that is not quite as attractive or reassuring as uh, the as the implication that say, well, everybody's making some compromises, everybody's put on a little weight, everybody's watching too much TV or drinking too much. It's okay. We get a suggestion here with this shrugging off of biology that uh, the compromises of this poem might be a little a little more unsettling.
To live in Manhattan, one gets okay with an underwhelming kitchen. That is uh, a very unremarkable compromise. I'm sure that for people who can afford to live in Manhattan, uh, having a not, uh, you know, a, a not state-of-the-art, a not um, up to the latest fashion, fully equipped kitchen is a sacrifice, but it doesn't seem like much of one. So that's a, that's a very, um, that is the kind of lowered standard that uh, it's populated many a pandemic poem. To teach middle school orchestra, one gets okay with multiple tonalities. So set right next to that as if they were comparable is the suggestion that, uh, that one needs to make a certain kind of adjustment, not just in one sense of, uh, you know, decorating preferences, but maybe in one's vocation as well. To stay with a person. There's a, there's a good line break there. It's a line and stanza break there. To stay with a person because we are used to discussions of compromise, if nowhere else, than in conversations about marriage or long-term romantic relationships. To stay with a person, of course, we all know you have to compromise, you have to adjust, you have to stop expecting certain kinds of change, you have to be uh, somebody who, who can go along to get along a little bit. That's normal and healthy. And so I think we're, we're sort of prepared for a, um, a little bit of uh, lighthearted avuncular ribbing here. You know, we all, we, we, we've all heard a million marriage jokes. So that's sort of what we are led to expect. To stay with a person, one shouldn't. One gets okay with ignoring line break. Friends. So, so this is really where this becomes a different kind of poem. Because it's not to stay with a person uh, when it's hard, or to stay with a person when one doesn't always want to. To stay with a person one shouldn't, explicitly to do what one should not do. One gets okay with ignoring, and of course, we are used to ignoring things when we are in long-term relationships. Of course, one ignores one's spouse's foibles, but this is something very different. To stay with a person, one shouldn't, one gets okay with ignoring friends. So this is really a, a different kind of lower standard. This is lowered standards or compromises or elisions or denial that uh, that don't lead anywhere sustainable or good. This is the easy part. The difficulty lies in knowing when simply surviving is not okay. That is a sentence I really enjoy, or rather, <laughs> I appreciate it. The difficulty lies in knowing when simply surviving is not okay. It sounds almost like it's saying a slightly different thing. Right? It sounds almost like it's saying, uh, you know, when simply surviving, sometimes okay is not good enough. Right? We were told okay is the new good, but maybe this is the moment when we, we see that, ah, oh, here's where okay is not really good or good enough. But, but no, simply surviving. The difficulty lies in when knowing, in knowing when simply surviving is not okay. Okay is a very low bar here. Okay is uh, what you can convince yourself in the moment you can bear. And sometimes survival, that is, sometimes life is even, can't even meet that standard. But of course, if we, if we turn the same sentence in a slightly different direction, then it might very well read, the difficulty lies in knowing when simply surviving is not okay. The difficulty knows uh, lies in knowing when not surviving is okay. All rules of thumb are currently inapplicable. We've gotten to the bottom here. And she tells us the difficulty lies in knowing when simply surviving is not okay. All rules of thumb are currently inapplicable. 
right? That's the kind of observation we've heard a, a, a number of times. You know, the, there is no new, you know, the, the, we, we've lost the old normal. We're establishing, establishing a new normal. All the old rules don't apply. That's, a, that's very familiar language. Again, it's why this whole poem could almost be a very different kind of poem. It's almost disguised as a different kind of poem. All rules of thumb are currently inapplicable. Yet here I am teaching you thumbs up. That, that is the sort of turn that I think in a, in a different poem would be a little facile because we would say, well, this is just, uh, you know, sort of playing on different meanings of uh, the word, different conventional uses of the word thumb, rule of thumb versus thumbs up. It's almost just using the word lazily to, to switch from one subject to a slightly different one. But here, what we're hearing specifically is that life has reached a point at which it may not be bearable. And all existing standards are gone. And yet, what the speaker is teaching, the person we learn in a moment is, is a child, presumably her child, what she is teaching this child is to put your thumbs up, to say this is good, to rubber stamp this reality. Before you even know what it means, she's teaching you to say thumbs up, good. This is good. This is fine. This is okay. Here's my hand touching your little fingers. It's a, it's a, it's a subtle touch. It's a very, you know, short poem. The lines get shorter as it goes along, which is, you know, not a lot, but that's unusual. Uh, it becomes more compact as it goes. Here's my hand touching your little fingers. It's a very subtle, uh, skillful way of letting us know this is a parent instructing a child, presumably. It's very little wasted. As much, as much um, plain received language as there is in this poem, there's actually very little that is wasted. Here's the curve. Here's the sign. We are okay. She's literally putting the child's fingers into the position to approve, to say yes to this thing, which we've just learned the child should certainly, nobody should be saying yes to. And we are okay is exactly the kind of line that could well end one of those other poems, except that by the time we get here, and we realize what it means to say we are okay, let alone to mean we are okay, uh, it is far from comforting. It is certainly nothing uh, inspirational. Um, so I, again, I really, it is a, it is an understated poem. I really admire it. Um, and uh, come on, Anne-Marie, send this one my way. Send, uh, I need to, I should, I should be soliciting work from Anne-Marie Thompson more often. So send me some work, Anne-Marie, if you happen to hear this. This is a really fucking good poem. I'm going to read it one more time and then sign off. Anne-Marie Thompson, okay is the new good, which contains multitudes. Finishing half the dishes, the homework, work, work, not crying or not crying much not dying. Adaptability has less to do with biology and more to do with getting okay with okay. To live in Manhattan, one gets okay with an underwhelming kitchen. To teach middle school orchestra, one gets okay with multiple tonalities. To stay with a person, one shouldn't. One gets okay with ignoring friends. This is the easy part, reaching a new equilibrium. The difficulty lies in knowing when simply surviving is not okay. All rules of thumb are currently inapplicable. And yet here I am, teaching you thumbs up. Here's my hand, touching your little fingers. Here's the curve. Here's the sign. We are okay. That was Okay Is by Anne Marie Thompson, and this is Slee Ricketts. 
Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, if you um, want to suggest any other poems um, uh, that uh, you know you think have been overlooked, you'd like to hear appear on the show, uh, write that or whatever else you'd like to write to sleevericketts at gmail.com. Uh, with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Thank <laughs> you.